All right, this morning, if you'd grab your Bibles, I want to begin um, looking at a text of Scripture in Mark chapter 2. If you're uh, using the Pew Bible like I am, it is page 838. So just grab this guy and turn to 838, and you'll be there. This is the last little uh, story in Mark chapter 2, and it has direct bearing in a very parallel way to the subject that we're going to talk about today in our series, uh, Restored. So Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28 is where we're looking this morning, and I'll begin reading it as you, as you find it. <clears throat> One Sabbath, he, this is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, he, his disciples began to pluck the heads of the grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and he who were with him, how they entered into the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence? Just a side editorial note. Remember in our King series that this past winter we actually went over this story. We just talked about this not too long ago. So just kind of spark your memory. Uh, David and his men go in, they, they eat this bread uh, that is only lawful for the priests to eat. Verse 27, and he said to them, so this is his concluding thought, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, I want to apologize for a moment. If you're new to church or uh, maybe you're (coughs) a beginning Christian or maybe you're a visitor, you don't know anything about the Bible. If that's the case, then this is a really bizarre story. And this might be one of the reasons why the Bible is so hard for people to just kind of pick up and read because there's a lot of like nuanced stuff going on here. What's Sabbath? What does that even mean? That's not a word we use that often in our our common parlance. And why does anybody care so much about it that the Pharisees are yelling at Jesus and his disciples for for going on a walk and grabbing it? There's a lot of backstory here. So I want to just acknowledge that if this is like a weird story to you and you're not sure what's going on, I understand if you're here today and you're, you're kind of a more advanced Christian, you know what's up already. You know that the Sabbath was the holy day that was set aside, a day of worship, much like we as Christians today call this the Lord's Day. And we worship on the day the Lord was raised from the dead, which is on the Sunday. So we, we worship on the Lord's Day, whereas the Jews worship on Saturday, which is the last day of the Jewish week, the Sabbath. And you might even, if you're really advanced, like Gwen over there or something, and you've been to seminary, you know all, the, all of the ins and outs. It helps if you turn it on. You would know that in Exodus 31, not only is the day supposed to be kept holy, but it actually is written that anyone who does any work on the Sabbath is to be cut off from the people. So we're talking about some kind of like removal from the camp or some kind of possible execution. Like this is serious business. But some of you are really clever, like Travis over there, and your brain's already spinning, and you're saying, well, what's work, huh? What's work? Because if you said, Jordan, you need to mow your lawn, that is work. You need to work in the flower garden, that is just awful work. You need to work on the car. Why, right? Why, Lord? Some of you, those things are actually relaxing for you. That's not work to you at all. Right? We have different concepts of what is and is not work. Work is really kind of, uh, kind of a, a word that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And that's what we see going on here, right? 
That's what we see going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. They have very different conceptions of what the word work, written in the black and white of Scripture, means. Now, I, I pulled this from a Jewish website, so I want, before I put it up, I want you to understand the context. I wanted to, to look up and, and see what are people talking, what are today Jewish people still talking about when it comes to the Sabbath. This is the fourth rule concerning what you are allowed to lift on the Sabbath. You with me? So this is from a Jewish website that talks about the observance of Torah. This is the fourth rule, not about just any kind of work in general, but specifically what you are allowed to lift or not lift. You are allowed to lift things which are normally forbidden on the Sabbath if for two reasons. First, they are needed for an activity permitted on the, I think I have Shabbat there, yeah, this is how they would pronounce Sabbath, it's the same, same word, this is just a more modern, uh, modern Hebrew or modern Jewish way of saying the same word. Uh, uh, they are needed for an activity permitted on the Sabbath and nothing else can perform that task. For instance, if you have a coconut and you need to eat it and you have a hammer and that's all you've got, you are allowed to lift the hammer to smash the coconut. Or if you have a child and you need to boost that child because they, you know, they're, you know, you guys got kids, you know, they're at the table, they can't do it. So, and you've got a phone book, which is, which is normally not something you're allowed to pick up, but because that child is just like here at the table, you're allowed to pick it up, put it on a chair so the child may sit on it so they may, they may eat. That's the first, the first allowed rule. The second is like it. The place uh, the object occupies is needed. So if you have a pen that is on a chair, and I'm at Brad's house for a small church, and there's a pen on a chair, and I need to sit in that chair because all the other chairs are filled, I am permitted to lift the pen to sit on the chair in order to keep this, this word work. You just breathe a sigh of relief if you're a believer in Jesus here today. You just need to breathe a sigh of relief. Because this is what we're talking about here. Now, this is what today, and let, let's not pretend like today we're more conservative than they were like 2,000 years ago, right? I mean, this is, today we're talking about pens and hammers and staplers and things like that. What were they talking about in Jesus' day, right? This is an amazing, just like, uh, just to stop for a second, this is an amazing work of grace that we come to the grace of God and, and we're, not, we're not dealing with these kinds of questions. If you ever think Christians get nitpicky, man, you, you haven't seen nothing. The grace of God is, is amazing. I'm just I'm thankful for that as I read this today for all that God has given us um, in, his, in his sacrifice of Jesus to remove the, the works of the law so that we may enter into relationship based on faith in Jesus. Yes? Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is just so funny to me. All right, so you can imagine then, with this in mind, this is today, this, I, I accessed this Thursday, so this is, this is a contemporary website. You can imagine how Jesus walking through the fields, and the Pharisees who observed this at some point, Jesus walking through the fields and, and they're grabbing the grain, how scandalized they are by this, because there were rules about how far you could walk. You could walk two-thirds of a mile, but not a full mile. Two-thirds of a mile is not work. A full mile, that's work. Just so you know. I don't know what a marathon would fit. I don't know how that would fit <laughs> in there. That torture, I don't know. You, you get to heaven because you worked way harder. Though. I don't know what, what that does. But anyway, this is, so they're scandalized by Jesus doing this. And then the disciples are technically harvesting, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're walking through and they're harvesting. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, 
Going back to the text, is this what Jesus or what God was, was thinking about when he said to his people, I'm going to give you the Sabbath day and I want you to keep it holy? Is this what God was after? This kind of hair splitting. Jesus makes a different conclusion. So the, or the, the Pharisees, they're one group and they are making assumptions based on principle. The principle is we love God. And we want to do what God wants us to do because we want God to be pleased with us. And so they take this word work and they're good Jewish people who are like, well, what what constitutes work and what doesn't? And so the disciples, or the, the, the Pharisees, build on top of that word work all kinds of explanations and definitions so that everyone is on the same page and no one offends God. And Jesus comes to a completely different conclusion based on his principle, which is this. Look at your text. The Sabbath was made for who? Man. It was a graceful act of God in creation to take a break and to say, hey, all y'all, you need to take a break. Some of you workaholics need to take a break. You need to step back. You need to enjoy your family. You need to enjoy your church. You need to enjoy your Lord. You need to enjoy the creation around you. And you need to be not so caught up in the things that you're doing and thinking that by producing and producing and producing, you're actually the one who is producing. No, everything is a gift from God. And we take a day to stop and recognize that. This is about grace. And this is not a lot of grace, right? That's what the law was about. That's what Sabbath was about. So Jesus says, the reason God gave you Sabbath was so that you would have the grace, this blessing, of a day of rest. And then the seventh year was a year of rest. And the year of Jubilee, even more rest. I won't get into that. And then Jesus makes a further conclusion. I am the son of man. That is, I am the ruler. I am the agent that God has sent. And therefore, I am Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I could stop them if we need to. If this breaks into the realm of work, if they pull out a sickle out of their back pocket and start harvesting, we'll, we'll put a stop on it. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. So, so relax. Don't be a thief of joy if you saw that Facebook meme we kicked out yesterday. So this gets us to our question, our core question that we've been asking through this series. And that is, we're calling ourselves, we've called ourselves for 200 years, the Restoration Movement. We're a, a network of churches that are connected but independent, we might say interdependent. We're dependent on one another. I have good relationships in our church. I have good relationship with Comstock, uh, Church of Christ, and West Kalamazoo Christian Church. We're related to them deeply, and yet they don't tell us what to do, and we don't tell them what to do. But we're all a part of this thing called the Restoration Movement, which brings the question, what is being restored? What are we trying to get at? What are we trying to, to fix up again? What are we trying to get back to And here it would be my answer for this morning as we've been talking about it. The principles of Christian unity, especially the word principle. This idea that, this idea that there are core beliefs that you should hold to without wavering. There are core beliefs that you should hold on to without without vacillation, without changing your mind. And that when pressure comes and someone says, well, I don't don't agree with that, I don't think, this, this, this is something that is foundational to who, you, to who you are. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, that's what's, what we wrestle with, I think, in many ways. How is it that we can, as a group of Christians, gather together in unity to worship God and to evangelize the world if, if we're constantly bickering about your opinion versus my opinion or your tradition versus my tradition or your, your way of thinking about things or my way of thinking about things? 
In fact, that's what we see here with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees are arguing about what is the word work. They all agree the word work is in the Bible. They all agree they shouldn't do it. But they're all disagreeing about what constitutes that work. You follow me? Everybody with me? So how, are the, how is Jesus and the disciples and the Pharisees, who even though the Pharisees are frequently um, Jesus' theological opponents, they're arguing about topics found in the Bible, they're arguing about what it looks like to follow God, Jesus still cares about them. He still loves them. He wants to be unified with them. He wants them all together to worship God and to follow God. So how could Jesus and the Pharisees get on the same page concerning this very issue of of work. Now, I realize that we're not, we're not wrangling about work, but we are wrangling over other issues with other brothers and sisters, um, other people who call themselves Christians. And we have a particular way of getting at unity for the sake of worship and evangelism, as we've been talking about for the past two weeks. And I'll give you this quote from Alexander Campbell. Remember, sometimes we're the Restoration Movement. Sometimes we'll also call ourselves the Stone Campbell Movement after Campbell. Alexander Campbell says this, and I like it. I like it a lot. You might want to scribble it down. We take the Bible, the whole Bible, and oh, rats. Can you run to my office? Like, this is going to be important. And I left two big fat, I'll be more specific, uh, two big fat books, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And go grab that and bring that to me. Thank you. This was his whole job today. We appreciate it. (laughs) Wonderful. I love Paul. He's so great. Thank you. Uh, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, so I love this. I love this. This gets at it. And you might say to yourself, well, I've been to a lot of different kinds of churches with different kind of names on their signs, and they would all agree with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all, but we have a particular way of going about it that is different than any other church that you'll go to. I'm pretty confident of this. And it comes in Thomas Campbell's statement. Uh, Thomas Campbell was Alexander Campbell's father. And I'll read this to you, but I know that it's a little bit old language, old very thick. He says, nothing ought to be inculcated or demanded, imposed upon Christians as articles of faith, nor required of them as terms of communion, but what is expressly taught and enjoined upon them in the word of God. Now, let me clarify that using the illustration of the story that we've been going through with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees agree on, on, on one thing. And that is that the Bible says, the law of Moses says, the word work should not be done, you should not work on the Sabbath. They agree with that. Thank you so much. What do they disagree about? Defining what work is, right? They're disagreeing with that. And they're coming up with what? Two separate conclusions about what that work looks like. Now, if you take that and you apply that to any other issue that we might have in the modern church, we could all look at the Bible and in the black and white, what is expressly taught in the word of God, expressly taught and enjoined, so telling us what to do upon the word of God is what? Do not work on the Sabbath. And then anything further from that, you cannot say, this you must do in order to be a Christian. Does that make sense? So we all agree on what is in the black and white of the page. We all agree this is what it says. And we are left to our own conscience in so many cases to make further conclusions about how these things ought to apply in our lives. 
And so if Travis has one idea of, of work, and I have another idea of work, and we both agree with work, and I see Travis working on, I don't know, what do you want to work on, Travis? His car. <sighs> working on the carburetor that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I see Travis working on his car, and I see, Travis, you are breaking the Sabbath. You're in danger of angering God. I'm cutting you off from the community, man. Travis could say, this isn't work to me. This is how I'm relaxing, right? And finally, she's in the house, and I'm in the garage. Like, don't, I'm sure that never happens. I'm totally kidding. I'm, I'm relaxing here. This, is, this to me, is how I'm unwind. This is how I'm, this is how I'm celebrating. I'm using the, the gifts that God has given me in my hand. And, and, and because, because we have decided principally to be unified only on what the text of Scripture says, the applications thereafter have to be left for grace. We have to be willing to live with one another and disagree with one another on those extra matters. Now, there are going to be five principles I'm going to give you. I'd like for you to write them down if you, if you have any interest in that. These are all going to follow from what I just said. And the very first one is this. These are slogans. These are things that we would kind of say offhandedly. They're pithy little maxims that you can throw out that kind of get at this principle I'm trying to share with you. That Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples could all be unified in their worship of God and their love of God and their love of the neighbor and their spreading the, well, the gospel hadn't quite taken full, full note, but you, you get what I mean. They could have been unified if they had agreed that work was there and disagreed just agreed to disagree as we sometimes say, right? Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. What is the Bible silent about? It's silent about what work means. What it is not silent about is you shouldn't do work. We can agree on that. There are plenty of other issues we could throw out there. What should you call yourself if you're a follower of Jesus? Should you call yourself a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox? Should you call yourself a believer? Should you call yourself a Christian? Should you call yourself a disciple? What should you call yourself? Does it matter? I think these days, we don't have a lot of principles. So the answer we often have is, it doesn't matter. I find that sad. If you're going to gather believers into one place, and you're going to build a building, and you're going to put a sign out front, what are you going to call that sign? What are you going to call that building? Are you going to call it a First Presbyterian Church of Portage? Are you going to call it... First Christian Church of Portage, you're going to call it the flame, the harvest, the spirit, the wind, the whatever. That's the big thing now, and I disdain it deeply, as you can tell. Sometimes my cranky oldness just comes bubbling up. If you're going to have a church, and you're going to have leadership in that church, what's that leadership going to look like, and what are you going to call that leadership? You can call it elders, or deacons, or, or reverends, or, I mean, if you want to revere me, that's fine, but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Priests, I mean, what do you call it? And when you have these different areas of functional leadership, does it matter if what they do is what we saw in scriptures? Or can we just look at, you know, the CEO or look at the American government or look somewhere? Like, where do we get the principle of what it looks like for that leadership to function? If you want to become a Christian, does it matter what you say, what you agree to? Does it matter that you sign at the dotted line? And if so, who gets to determine what's on that dotted line? What? What about all those things? Well, this is our foundational point, as we've seen, and there are some things that will follow after it. The second principle of this, we are not the only Christians. We are Christians only. 
Immediately we're beginning with a moment of grace. We are assuming the best of everyone who says to you, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You begin with a place of assuming they aren't lying to you. That's important. Because sometimes the moniker that happens before I'm a Christian, like I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Roman Catholic or I'm an Eastern Orthodox or I'm a blah, 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 whatever, charismatic, Democrat, Republican, whatever, and then Christian comes after, that first thing is sometimes a, way, a place where we begin to mistrust the second thing. Are you with me? We foundationally, principally, ignore the first, assume the second, until for some reason somebody proves to you they're not really a follower of Jesus. That's important to us. We are not the only Christians. However, we as a church and as a movement refuse to take on any other name other than Christian. We look at the Bible and we say, well, what did the Bible call us? What did the Bible call the followers of Jesus? And they did call us things other than Christians. There's disciple, there is believer, there are members of the way in Acts chapter uh, chapter 9, but we do not call ourselves Campbellites, we don't call ourselves Stonites, we don't call ourselves Scottians, though that has a nice Star Trek ring to it, and I kind of like it. We call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves Christians. Why? Because that's what the Bible, so we're going back, because we can all agree on that. We might all disagree about the first name, the first, you know, Baptist or whatever, but we all agree on the second one, and we're looking for friends. Remember last week? We're looking for people we can agree with. We're looking for people who want to worship the same God we want to worship, who, who want to bring more people to worship that same God, right? So we are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. This is why we take that, that principled position, because that's what we see in Scripture. Thirdly, here's another one. Bible names for Bible things. Another great slogan that was, that was used. Now, this isn't meant to uh, point fingers at other churches or somehow denigrate them. But it is to say, if we're going to find some commonplace of unity, and this is what I've discovered, because I've got, I've got friends who call themselves Christians who are liberals and conservatives and everything in between. And you know what I have always found? All of them are willing to talk about the Bible. I mean, that's a common starting place. All of them are willing to talk about the Bible. If I say, you know, Jesus said... X, no one says, well, pfft, I don't care what Jesus said, right? They're all willing to say, well, Jesus really meant this, or Jesus really meant that, or Jesus is a product of his culture, you know, whatever. But nobody's willing to just say, that eh, Jesus, pfft, you know, who cares about that guy? So what does that tell us? That tells us that immediately we have a starting place with everyone who wants to follow Jesus. We have the Bible. And from there, we can begin to have conversations, deeper conversations. And here we like to use Bible names for Bible things. So as I, said, I brought up a, a point. What do you call a church when you put a sign out front? Our movement early on said, well, what did, the, what did they call churches? Like that was their first thought. What did they call? In fact, the first church planted in our movement, not really planted, isn't quite right, but it's good enough to get us where I need us to go, was called Brush Run Church. Guess why? Because it was that brush run. Creative, right? Real creative. It's not meant to be creative. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to, to, to gussy things up and make things more fancy than they were. Wow, that was really gussy things up. We're not trying to make things look better than they are. We're trying to keep it as simple as possible because it is easier for us all to agree, agree when things are simple. Brush run church. 
The, the Bible calls us the church of Christ. The Bible calls us the church of God. The Bible says we're full of Christians. The Bible calls us the church in Galatia, the church in wherever. And this is why you get things like Oakland Drive Christian Church, Comstock Church of Christ, um, things, like, things like that. Furthermore, when I say it doesn't matter, as I said earlier, it doesn't matter what you call your leadership. Some churches have elders, some churches have deacons, some churches have both, some churches have neither. Already we've gotten so complicated, haven't we? What did they do in the Bible? They had elders and they had deacons. The elders took care of spiritual matters, deacons took care of physical matters, and that way the church was being cared for and led further, closer to God, deeper in discipleship, more worship, more evangelism, more worship, more evangelism, more worship, more evangelism, because it is all about what? More worship? More. You're slow, but it's, it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. More worship and more evangelism, because that's what it's about. And what can we do? We can all agree on what Scripture says, because it's there in black and white. They had elders. They had deacons. Ergo, we should have elders, have deacons. And it isn't because we're trying to, to say, well, we need to start something new. or we need to, It's to say we, we've gone away from something that was really simple and laid out. We've gone away from something that was really clear and they had really early. And, and if we get back to what the apostles were doing, that gets us at least closer to what Jesus was talking to them about, right? And so because you're all reasonable, intelligent human beings, we can sit down with the Bible and say, well, we, we see these things. And therefore, we, we want to do, do what they did. We want to do what they did. Again, this isn't to cause more division. This isn't to thumb our nose at the Lutherans next door or something. But it is to say that what we can agree with the Lutherans on is what is written in Scripture. And, and if we keep it on that simple level and we give room for opinions on the secondary level, we can have more worship, more evangelism, because we have more unity. Are you with me? Everybody with me? Okay. So, four, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Now, this might not mean a whole lot to you if you didn't, weren't raised. If you were raised in a church like this, you're like, who cares? And I think that's what happens a little bit. If you've, if you've been a part of a church for a long time, you begin to lose sight of, of what it is that makes you sort of unique. And this is one of the things that honestly makes us quite unique. I brought, Paul brought, two of my favorite books. Uh, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, it's not really this long. There's a lot of commentary because the commentary wasn't, commentary enough. Um, if you want to join a Reformed church or a Presbyterian church, you need to agree with the Bible. You need to believe the Bible. You also need to believe this. This is your creed. You have to sign on the dotted line. Right? That's, that's a part of it. This describes what they believe the Bible really means when it uses the words like work. You with me? If you want to become Roman Catholic, you actually have to do way more than this. But this is my copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, it's an interesting read. Uh, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know who made that noise, but you need to see me after church. Uh, if you want to become Roman Catholic, now, you, you have to believe in the Bible. You absolutely do. 
You absolutely do. But you also have to believe in, in, in all of this. And there's actually a whole lot more than this. This is the, this is the dumbed-down version for dummies. And um, they would say that this explains this. But what's going to happen if four of us pick up this and this and begin reading this and, and matching it up? We're probably going to have some difference of opinions here, right? right? This, this, this is something that, that people begin to disagree about. But this is something in black and white we can all agree about. It's simple. It, 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 it's, it's there. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible is simple. There are places that, that do need some definition, that do need explanation, that are difficult to understand. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. And I'm not trying to denigrate Roman Catholics or Presbyterians or whoever. I'm simply saying what we have taken as a position is we are not going to say to anyone, you can't be a Christian, you can't be a member of this church if you don't agree to our our lists, as short or long as they may be. We call you to confess the same confession that Peter confessed. You ever notice that? When we, do, when we have people come up and they become members, or, or if they're baptized, we don't ask them to sign on the dotted line. We ask them, do you believe what Peter believed? And then Jesus said, upon this rock, this rock of your confession, I am going to build the church. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? It's very simple. It's in black and white. We can all agree it's there. And we can find unity then. Now you might hold some beliefs. There's a ton of stuff in both of these books that I agree with. There's a ton I don't too. But, <laughs> but there's a ton of things that we can agree on. This we can all agree on. This we can all agree on. And so we say something like, no creed but Christ. I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to believe in Anything that doesn't begin right here with Jesus in what is distinctly and clearly written in Scripture. And we're not going to ask you to sign on the dotted line of any book but the Bible. Again, because the Bible is the source of the Christian faith, uh, the New Testament especially. The source of how we get to what Jesus was about and how he described things to his disciples and how his disciples then handed them on to us. And so we go there first, foremost, and only. And that does, that does make us different. That does make us different. It also leads us to a place, and this is kind of where I will end, that final principle. It's essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Now let's say, Travis, because I'm picking on Travis today and I don't know why, but he looks nice. I don't know. I don't know. Let's say Travis agrees with all of this. And says, you know, we, we, I, I really agree with everything I'm, I'm reading right here in this, in this, in this catechism. I, I love it. Like, that's great, Travis. I mean, I'm, you know, like, let's wrangle, let's argue about the things I don't like. Let's agree on things, that we did, things like that. But, but what could happen is that this could become a wall, couldn't it, between him and me. And we don't want those walls. We want as many non-walls. Fields? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. We want, we want as few walls as possible so we can have more unity because then we get more worship and more evangelism. See? Very good. And that's what we're after. And so what we're going to do is we're going to agree on the essentials. We're going to agree on no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And Travis and I are going to disagree on the non-essentials, maybe certain elements of, of this or, or whatever. You know, this is... We're going to disagree about those non-essentials. And whether we disagree about those non-essentials or we disagree about the essentials, we are going to both agree 
to be charitable. And maybe that's a good place for us to end. In all things charity, in all things love. Because we live in a day and age, they lived in one then and we lived in one now. It's not like the world's gotten better or worse. It's always kind of been pretty terrible and broken, right? But we ought to, with those people who agree with us on essentials or disagree with us on essentials, we ought to be people of charity. We ought to be people of love. We ought to be people that give the benefit of the doubt. We ought to be people who who care enough about others to listen to them spout off against the things you believe at core, your core beliefs, so that you can begin to explain to them. Because as soon as you begin to rebuild more and more walls, you're never going to be able to share the gospel with them, are you? As soon as you write somebody off, are you going to share the gospel with them? Is there going to be more worship to God because there are more people coming to Jesus? No, right? No. And so if we begin with charity, if we begin with we're not the only Christians, if we begin with this this belief that, that God is really reaching into the world with the power of his spirit to draw more people to himself so that more worship and more evangelism can go out so that God might be glorified because that's what this is all about. It is all about the glory of God. We have to begin with charity. We have to begin with love. We have to begin with hope and with peace and with joy and with all those fruits of the Spirit that the Spirit wants to cultivate in our lives. I'm going to leave you with these principles. They're principles that are kind of for, form the core of, of my identity and of the identity of this church and of, of all of our churches. And ponder these things maybe even make them your core identity too let's stand as we sing praise to our God giving him all worship glory honor and praise